Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday. It's great to have your company, Marcus Paul, in the morning right around Australia. We are on starterfm.com.au. If you haven't downloaded the uh, uh, the iHeartRadio app uh, on your phone, then of course you can just do it the old-fashioned way and Google starterfm.com.au and press listen live. It's pretty damn easy uh, to listen to the program. We're also on the TuneIn app as well. And if you're not listening live, maybe listening back to the Prawncast, well, of course, that's where you can catch up on the day's stories and the contents. Okay, what is it? The 21st day of June, big day in New South Wales. Uh, we'll finally get to have a little look at the, uh, the total debt uh, in the state. Now, in fairness, we are dealing or have dealt with covid throughout a lot of the last couple of years and 1.3 billion dollars has been spent on new south wales taxpayers relief if you like on you know in covid payments uh, and also some you know those vouchers and the dine and discover programs and they were very successful anyway i've, I've got a list of uh, where most of that money the covid money was actually spent in particular in new south wales I'll go through that story for you soon. But as I say, the books will be opened by Treasurer Mac Keen. Uh, I'm happy to say they are going to relook at that ridiculous scenario where $25 million would get you a new Aboriginal flag on top of the Harbour Bridge. Surely, after the public outcry, uh, they've worked out they can do it for a lot cheaper. Anyway, speaking of public outcry, not just the public, but politicians within the state government itself in New South Wales, the Deputy Premier John Barillaro, oh, former Deputy Premier John Barillaro can't keep himself out of the headlines and he made news again yesterday. Uh, Of course, on Friday... And even before that, uh, followers of my program and Friendly Geordies would know that Jordan uh, mentioned that, well, John Barillaro had scored a job for the boys, a plum gig worth half a million dollars as a trade ambassador to the Americas. Not bad. Not bad at all. Um, Anyway, there are concerns that it's a job for the boys. And on top of that, it's actually a position where, as Trade Minister in New South Wales, Mr Barillaro actually (laughs) came up with a job himself. Anyway, uh, was there proper oversight? Uh, And why didn't this position go before the Cabinet for approval? Yeah, considering it's such a highly paid gig and, of course, giving it to the former Deputy Premier would be contentious. Uh, Now, I see the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, and the uh, Treasurer, Mac Keen, have both defended it and others have as well, but I don't know. I really don't know. And obviously, the opposition are upset, Chris Minns, so there will be an inquiry. Uh, in state parliament into the whole process as to how John Barillaro ended up with this gig. Um, and, you know, it may well be that he is the most qualified. And, you know, um, he certainly is qualified, but is he the most? I don't know, it just doesn't... 
you know, whenever there's that kind of gig given to a former high-profile politician, questions are asked, and not just, you know, by the public and journalists, but even within the Liberal Party in New South Wales themselves. All right, um, cost of living expenses, unfortunately, IPART, which is the, uh, the, the mob that independently looks at council rates, they've agreed with a whole stack, I think 80-plus councils, uh, to give a special rate variation increase after a couple of years uh, dealing with COVID. So your rates are going to go up in some cases by 2.5%. I'll go through that story as well. The latest news will keep you updated, as we always do, thanks to our friends at Air News uh, and some tunes for you right across the morning here on Starter FM. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Let's get into it on this Tuesday. Okay, let's get into it on this Tuesday morning. Great to have you company. Marcus Paul in the morning, live around Australia here on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in, of course, and on the Prawncast. Well, he can't stay out of the news. The former New South Wales Deputy Premier and former leader of the New South Wales Nationals, John Barillaro. Now, the latest on Mr Barillaro is that an inquiry will probe his appointment to a half a million dollar a year trade role that he apparently created while he was still in government. Yeah, it's one of these jobs for the boys scandals, I think. Anyway, the appointment of former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro to a highly paid trade job that he created while in government will be probed by an upper house inquiry. Mr Barillaro was tapped for the half a million dollar a year Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner to the Americas on Friday. It was a position that he himself created when he was Trade Minister. Now, the state's treasurer in New South Wales, Mac Keen, he's defended the appointment and insisted proper processes had been followed. However, the opposition leader, Chris Minns, accused Premier Dominic Perrottet of making a, quote, captain's pick. Wouldn't be the first time, would it? He will be held accountable for it, said Chris Minns. How can you get appointed to a high-paying trade commissioner job, a job set up by John Barillaro before he left office, without that appointment going to Cabinet? There we go. It's a good question, isn't it? Now, the Centre for Public Integrity's Executive Director, Han Albee, said there needed to be transparency in public appointments, including uh, clear and transparent criteria and selection panel made of senior public servants, including the Public Service Commissioner. The panel, according to Albee, should report to the public on the chosen candidate's qualifications and experience with an assurance that the candidate meets the selection criteria. Public appointments are paid by the taxpayer to work in the public interest. Trust in the merit and independence of these appointments, of course, is crucial. Now, we're told the appointment will now be put under the microscope at an upper house inquiry to be established later this week. 
The inquiry will review other applications, any conflicts of interest that arose during the process, and if ministers were given the chance to provide any feedback. All right, well, senior ministers came out in support of the appointments yesterday with Matt Keane saying Barilaro, quote, appears qualified to be a trade commissioner given his previous role as a trade minister, asked if it was appropriate that the appointment did not get cabinet sign-off and what the proper process was. Mr Keane said he supported the process being followed. He said the usual process where people apply for a position that's interrogated by appropriately qualified public servants and they make recommendations. That's what Matt Keane said. And he said that he had also been informed that the proper processes had been followed. Well, it's not a bad gig. I mean, honestly, the job boasts a $450,000 salary excluding superannuation, as well as a $112,950 annual cost of living allowance and relocation costs. <laughs> Their health minister, Brad Hazard, said he fortuously, uh, fortuitously knows nothing about the appointment, but also supported the proper process being uh, followed. He's obviously qualified, Mr Hazard said yesterday. It's been done through the process that is normal, and that's the outcome. Now, over the weekends, Dominic Perrottet also defended the appointment, insisting the former minister was the best candidate to emerge from an $18,000 recruitment surge. Gee, they love spending money, don't they, the public service? It doesn't come, this is Dom Perrottet. Now, he said, it doesn't come as any surprise to me that the independent process that occurred found that he was by far the most outstanding candidate and was recommended by that panel to the government, Mr Perrottet said. I'm sure he will do a brilliant job. All right, well, of course, as we know, John Barilaro has repeatedly made headlines in recent years, notably threatening to blow up the state coalition when he was the leader of the Nationals back in 2020 over a difference in koala policy. Uh, more recently, of course, he was awarded $715,000 in his defamation case against Google over a series of videos published by Friendly Geordies. No word yet to the press today or yesterday from Barilaro himself on this appointment. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning around Australia. If you wouldn't mind, give us a subscribe on our YouTube channel, Marcus Paul in the morning, and of course, a follow on our social media, including our Facebook page. That is the go-to for most of you. Thank you for all your comments on a number of stories we put up in the last 24 hours. Look, it was called a racially divisive publicity stunt by the Greens, federal Greens leader, Adam Bant, uh, that saw the leader hold a press conference with the Australian flag pushed off to the side of the room with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders flags front and centre. Uh, now, but Mr Bant's done this before, so I don't know why it's making news all of a sudden now. Anyway, 
Indigenous leader Warren Mundine has accused Adam Bant's Greens of trying to, quote, run down the country, unquote, after the party leader hid the Australian flag from view. Now, the events occurred yesterday afternoon in Sydney, shortly before Mr Bant was to hold a press conference with Deputy Greens leader Maureen Farquhar at the Commonwealth Parliamentary Offices in the city. Now, shortly before Mr Bant and Farquhar appeared, a staffer moved the Australian flag to the side. When asked why the flag was moved from behind the speakers, Mr Bant said the symbol was, quote, hurtful, to many Aboriginal Australians, a charge that was rejected by Indigenous leader Warren Mundine. Now, he told reporters yesterday it was an idiotic, uh, what will we call it, stunt. Yeah, he called it idiotic. And he said, are the Greens actually in the Australian Federal Parliament? Seriously, do they actually hate Australians that much? This is Mr Mundine. Aboriginals call themselves Australians all the time. The Greens are just a fringe university type group trying to run down the country. Look, I haven't got a problem with Adam Bant standing in front of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags, but as far as I'm concerned, while the man is elected, into the Australian Parliament, he should also be standing in front of the Australian flag. If you want to have 50 flags behind you while you speak, do your best. But I think it's a little disrespectful. That's my personal opinion. I've got no problem with having the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags there in, you know, pride of place, that's fine. But you also should have the current, whether you like it or not, the current Australian flag. Dr. Bella Debrera, who's director of the Foundations of Western Civilization program at the Institute of Public Affairs, said the actions were, quote, completely out of touch with real Australians who are proud of their country and proud of their history. As an elected member of the Commonwealth Parliament, Adam Bant has shown he's unfit to be a member of Parliament when he demonstrates contempt for one of Australia's most unifying symbols. Well, Adam Bant would argue that the Australian flag with the Union Jack front and centre obviously doesn't unify. And look, that's his prerogative and that's his opinion. You know, we <laughs> free speech and all that, he's well and truly entitled to do that and say that. Anyway, um, uh, from this uh, Institute of Public Affairs, Della Abrera, it's a right-wing think tank, of course, said, this is exactly the type of empty virtue signalling we've come to expect from the Greens party. Uh, Dr Abrera went on to say, the Australian flag is a unifying symbol that is a pillar of our history and the Australian way of life. She pointed to polling by her organisation, which in January found that 84% of Australians agreed they were proud to be Australian, with only 5% disagreeing. Now, National Senator Mac Canavan was also uh, contacted for comment on this. He labelled the move a disgrace. Well, no surprise there from Matt Canavan, but anyway. He went on to say, if the Greens are not proud of our Commonwealth, then they should not be using taxpayer-funded Commonwealth officers for their press conferences. And I hate to say it, but Matt has a point. 
The Greens' actions come, of course, just a day or two after New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet pledged $25 million to fly an Aboriginal flag permanently from the Harbour Bridge, despite not knowing why it will cost so much to add an extra flagpole to the structure. Now, yesterday we're told that they all of a sudden now are going back to the books, opening them up and having a bit of a rethink on that whole costing. And so they damn well should, because that was all anybody could talk about yesterday. How on earth does it cost you 25 million bucks to put up another flag? Anyway, opposition leader Peter Dutton's office, uh, he, uh, they declined to comment on the Greens leader's actions. However, one coalition source told News Corp the Bant's behaviour, quote, spoke for itself. Anyway, there's a story up on our Facebook page if you'd like to comment on that. Marcus Paul in the morning. We're into it on this Tuesday morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you company. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. The handle there, at MP in the morning. Uh, YouTube and Facebook as well, of course. Now, yesterday I read with interest that there may be a shake-up of bureaucrats in Canberra. That's in some of the top jobs. Well, that generally tends to happen with a change of government. But bureaucrats in Canberra, I mean, they're expecting a shake-up of top jobs with the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, that's DFAT, expected to be replaced. Why? Well, due to her role in that ridiculous robo-debt scandal. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is expected to appoint several new secretaries to run key government departments within the coming days. Australia's ambassador to Japan, Jan Adams, is the leading candidate to become the nation's top diplomat as the next secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. The head of the Defence Department, Greg Moriarty, had been tipped to take on the role, but it's understood Defence Minister Richard Miles would prefer him to stay in his current position. Now, the current Secretary of DFAT, Catherine Campbell, has only been in the job for a year, having been appointed by the former coalition government back in July of last year, 2021. But Labor, we're told, was unimpressed with her appointment at the time, given the fact she oversaw the rollout of the controversial robo-debt program as the Secretary of the Department of Social Services. Now, Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong has previously indicated she would prefer DFAT to be led by someone with a diplomatic background. A shift to lead a similar department or smaller department has been muted as an alternative role for Miss Campbell. So she won't effectively be out of a job. She's just going to be moved sideways. Now, prior to being stationed in Tokyo... Uh, Ms Adams served as Australia's ambassador to China and she has an extensive background in trade and international environmental policy. She recently accompanied Senator Wong at a meeting of the Quad in Japan just days after the Albanese government was elected to power. This is Jan Adams we're talking about. Now, the pair worked closely together when Labor was last in power 
so she has experience. Senator Wong was the climate change minister and Miss Adam was Australia's ambassador for climate change as the then Rudd government pushed for a more ambitious approach to global emissions reductions at the Copenhagen Climate Summit back in 2009. Now, Mr Albanese is also expected to announce new heads of the Department of Finance and the Department of Health with the incumbents Rosemary Huxtable and Brendan Murphy both retiring. Recruitment for someone to lead the newly formed super department covering climate change, energy, the environment and water has also been underway. These new appointments are expected to be confirmed in a cabinet meeting at at some point, possibly even today. Now, Anthony Albanese has already appointed Glyn Davis, the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, to head the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinets. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning. You know, one of the lowest acts, I think, is stealing from charity. Um, you know, every now and then I get an, uh, an alert from police saying that, you know, this charity uh, tin has been knocked off and police are looking for somebody, etc. Uh, but a story in South Australia has taken uh, the lowness, if you like, of this dog act to a new level. Thieves have broken into one of Food Bank, South Australia's warehouses, and stolen more than $50,000 worth of donated perfumes, cosmetics, and skincare products. Now, the warehouse on Cross Road at Edwardstown was targeted sometime after 9pm on Saturday last weekend, with the theft discovered by staff yesterday morning. Food Bank South Australia boss Greg Pattinson said the products were donated by one of the charity's partners. And he said that Targeting food bank is a pretty low act or a soft target. He said also these donations allowed us to provide some products for people who would not normally be able to afford those sorts of products. I mean, they do fantastic work, food bank. They have been distributing beauty products for some time to other charities like Catherine House, which offers support services to women who are experiencing homelessness. And he's right, Mr. Patterson, when he says it provides a great deal of dignity and allows women to maintain their own self-esteem because these are products that people would normally go without if they were really struggling. It's just something nice. We do some really good things on Mother's Day, for example, and make these products into little hampers. I mean, it's a great idea. The products are also used, of course, in fundraising, with all the money raised going toward buying food for those in need. Now, Mr Pattinson said the warehouse was also broken into two weeks ago, and the thieves would have spent at least an hour trying to break through a very secure metal door. They'd literally bent it in half and broke the lock mechanism in the door and then climbed over a number of pallets to get to where the cosmetics were being stored. Now, the products are discontinued lines and no longer available in store. Police say the public should be aware if they see them advertised for cheap online. 
Now, Mr. Pattinson said it would cost around $10,000 to fix the warehouse security and the robbery had been very disruptive to staff and volunteers. He said yesterday it's a distraction we don't need. Here we are trying to do good things in the community and if someone treats us with disrespect like that, takes us for granted, it just means our jobs are a hell of a lot harder. To the people who did it, if you need help, if you're having to resort to theft to make ends meet, then come and see us. We will try and help you in ways that you haven't considered. Now, police have asked anyone with information about the break-in. That's the break-in to Food Bank in South Australia. Uh, perhaps they also know the location of the stolen products. Please get in contact with Crime Stoppers 1-800-333-000. It's a pretty low act, really, when you think about it. Stealing from Food Bank. Marcus Paul in the morning. I don't normally control. Doesn't make any sense to me. Identity, Abby Remini, likes to tell us that he was delighted to know his PR guy. I don't know about you, you'll know that PR guy is dead right. The last thing we need... Children crying with fear. Well, firstly, a correction there. I certainly don't know. Mr. PR guy said some very hard things about Harvey Yemeni. He or she reported for the right-wing ultra-libertarian rebel news and very much against free speech. Well, firstly, a correction there, Andrew. Thanks for having me. At the end of the day, you know, you know everybody has the right to try and silence a PR guy because freedom of speech to be cut when doesn't suit their narrative. This has nothing to do with wearing a balaclava, you can say whatever you want. Yep, it's a Tuesday morning. Great to have your company, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Now, thank you to those who are listening to us via starterfm.com.au. Make sure you pass the word on that you, you know, we're here and you can listen to us that way. Uh, maybe you, you tuned in via the iHeartRadio app. Thank you. Maybe you're on TuneIn. It's great to have your company. Uh, maybe you're catching up on the podcast or the prawncast, which is what we like to call it. And if you do download it, please uh, give a thought to sharing it on your social media. All right, another police story now. Detectives in Sydney have released new footage in a bid to solve that horrific Easter show stabbing that killed a teenager, Pele Faliotu. Uh, police are probing this fatal stabbing of a teen, but they've come up, unfortunately, uh, with a you know some sort of code of silence. Yeah, teenagers, uh, and there were allegedly gangs involved in this violence, and when this happens, they tend not to uh, speak to the police. Anyway, around 10 seconds of fresh footage has been released of people police believe may help solve the stabbing death of this teenager during a brawl at the Sydney Royal Easter Show. As I mentioned, Pele, uh, that's what we'll call him. Uh, that was what he was known as to his mates. He was only 17 and he was fatally stabbed in the chest during this violence which happened on April 11 this year. Emergency services attended the carnival ride section at around 8pm following reports of a brawl during which two boys aged 16 and 17 both suffered stab wounds. Now Pele, who'd been on his break from actually working at the show's breakdance ride, died on the way to hospital. Now, the younger boy underwent treatment for a wound to his leg. Now, the newly released footage shows throngs of people walking along and police believe some of those depicted 
may have had a direct view of what unfolded and may be able to help with their investigations. A strike force has also been established to investigate the incident. Now, New South Wales Police said yesterday in a statement following further extensive reviews by forensic detectives, it's believed some of the persons depicted may have had a direct line of sight to the incident and could have vital information for investigators. If you recognise yourself or someone you know, or you have any additional information which could assist Strike Force investigators, then please contact Police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. Homicide Squad Detectives. They addressed the media yesterday afternoon as they launched a fresh appeal for information. Strike Force Cali is being led by detectives from the Homicide Squad, along with Auburn Police Area Command and Southwest Metro Region. The investigation has also been assisted by specialist forensic officers who have conducted extensive examination and analysis. But unfortunately, they're coming up with a stony silence from any witnesses who may be able to provide crucial pieces of evidence. Let's hope uh, for the sake of this young fellow's family that police get a breakthrough as soon as possible. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you company. Of course, today is budget day. In the state of New South Wales, and the books will be opened by Treasurer Mac Keen, and no doubt, uh, I think all the goodies so far have been uh, already <laughs> exposed, you know, with drops to uh, newspapers and news organisations. That's what happens. All the good news tends to come out first to soften the blow. Uh, look, we know uh, that New South Wales will have a, a massive debt, a lot of it, um, unfortunately, due to COVID. And there was a lot of taxpayer funding handed out in COVID economic support programs by the state government. In fact, we're told more than $1.3 billion. Yeah, uh, there was an analysis done uh, of the, the areas of New South Wales that received the most government funding. So let's have a look at it. Uh, communities with the highest number of vouchers redeemed have been revealed according to New South Wales Treasury data released to Parliament last month. The very successful Dine and Discover voucher program cost taxpayers an eye-watering $480.9 million in the last year. A further $331 million in vouchers are yet to be redeemed before the deadline. Now that's looming. Only 10 days away, June the 30th. So if you're still kicking around with a couple of those vouchers, you've got 10 days to use them, OK? Or nine days from today. Major hubs in Western Sydney saw some of the highest number of Dine and Discover vouchers redeemed with a massive 1.663 million people applying for a Discover voucher in Blacktown. That's to the tune of $41.271 million in taxpayer funds issued. Meanwhile, 434,000 people applied for the Dine vouchers, valued at a total of $10.715 million. In the Sydney CBD, 
the number of vouchers used skyrocketed with $64 million worth of Discover vouchers spent, as well as $31.35 million worth of Dine vouchers. Uh, Now, I'm not going to go through the local government areas, you know, one by one, but, I mean, obviously, uh, some of the regional areas, you saw a lot less of the vouchers being used for obvious reasons, you know, smaller population. But as we've highlighted, areas like of Western Sydney, including Blacktown, uh, were those areas that received the most support. New South Wales Treasury also forked out a further $89 million in stay New South Wales vouchers. That was in an effort to support accommodation providers impacted by COVID, with a total of $14.3 million redeemed. Meanwhile, businesses that faced hardship following the Northern Beaches lockdown in the 2020 Christmas period saw $11.7 million worth of funding issued to around 2,485 small businesses. They were approved between April 30th and June 11th, 2021. I remember those payments. The New South Wales Government's Small Business Support Grant which varied between three grand and ten grand, cost taxpayers six hundred and twenty-nine point nine million dollars between June the first and August thirty-first back in twenty twenty. Now, the release of COVID support funding for New South Wales residents and businesses comes as it can be revealed a further one hundred million dollars was handed out to residents across the state as a part of the test and isolate payment scheme. Yeah, look, there are plenty of areas where, you know, there were a lot of applicants. Again, you look in the western suburbs of Sydney and you go to Blacktown, 20,169 applications. The requested amount just shy of $6.5 million and on it goes. Um, Now, the Blacktown area, that's the LGA, saw the highest number of applications, as I mentioned, followed by Canterbury-Bankstown. They come in at just under $5 million. Fairfield at $4.48 million. Cumberland, $4.335 million. And the Central Coast with $4.227 million in requested support payments. So that's a lot of money when you add it all up. And, of course, there'll be a, a yucky number at the end of Treasurer Mac Keane's budget speech later today. And that'll be the, you know, the debt. But is it any wonder? With all that money, more than $1 billion being spent on COVID support payments in the state of New South Wales. In fact, more than $1.3 billion in taxpayer funding was handed out in COVID economic support programs by the state government. You know, uh, I guess that will be used as one of the reasons why... Uh, the state of New South Wales and the budget books are so far in the red. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning on this Tuesday. Now, we are coming up to the beginning or end of the financial year, depending on which way you want to look at it. Uh, Now, this time every year, we start looking at cost of living uh, expenses and uh, services, if you like, 
increasing with the consumer price index. Now, we know inflation is completely off the charts, in excess of 5% at the moment. Now, with cost of living so high, petrol prices skyrocketing, interest rates going up, you would have thought perhaps that councils across the state of New South Wales would maybe just sit on raising their rates up to a ridiculous level. But nope. No, no, no. Ratepayers across New South Wales are set to see a hit in their hip pocket with a massive 86 councils set to issue rate hikes following a surge in inflation. IPART, that's the regulator, has approved increases on rates for millions as obviously inflation continues to rise. So what are we told? Millions of ratepayers across New South Wales are set to be slugged with increases in council rates after IPART approved a massive 86 requests for special rate variations. The variations, which will see some ratepayers fork out up to 1.8% extra on their council bill notice, comes following high inflation and global uncertainty resulting in increased council costs. Councils argued they would be unable to deliver on infrastructure projects already committed to their applications to IPART. Well, surely some things could be put on hold at the moment. Councils, including Armidale, Bathurst, Bayside, Bega, Bellingen, Blaney, Cessnock, Parramatta, City of Sydney, Clarence Valley, Coffs Harbour, Coolamon, Cumberland, Federation, Forbes, Gilgandra, Goulburn, Gunnedah, Hawkesbury, Hilltops, Junee, Kaihama, Kuringai, Lake Macquarie, Lithgow, Murrumbidgee, Musselbrook, Newcastle, Orange, Parks, Penrith, Port Stephens, Queenbee and Palarang, Ramwick, Sutherland, The Hills, Urella, Warren, Warrumbungle and Weddonshire. There, that's a mouthful. Anyway, all of those councils saw a two and a half percent rate increase improved, uh, approved rather by IPART. All of those councils. So <laughs> there'll be uh, rate rises there without a doubt. Uh, now, what does it mean? Well, effectively, it means that council can continue according to IPART and uh, they're supposed to keep an eye on, you know, council costs and all the rest of it because councils can't just ask for increases without proving that they need them. But apparently they've all passed the test and they usually have a, a peg rate uh, and this year it was set at a minimum uh, for a rise, that is. They never go down, of course. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Now, this year, the rate peg was set at a minimum 0.7%, with some further increases allowed in councils with growing populations. The rate peg was lower than many councils expected, though. The additional special variation process gave councils an opportunity to increase this figure. Now, Tribunal member Deborah Cope, and I remember speaking to her last year, on council rate increases, she said that IPART were 
careful to balance the need of councils to maintain the services and investment they had already committed to against the need to keep rates affordable for the community. Guidelines require councils to show that they had budgeted for higher income than that provided by the rate peg and that they need the additional money to deliver on the projects they have already planned and included in their budgets. In the city's inner west, the city of Canada Bay raised their rates by 2.5% with a spokesman for the council telling news local, community growth and infrastructure had prompted the application for the rate variation. Now, the spokesman said to ensure no reduction in the quality and scope of the City of Canada Bay services and infrastructure for our growing community, the Council recently made an application for a special rate variation. This was approved alongside the majority of councils in New South Wales. Now, a spokesman for the Inner West Council explained the increase was included in its most recent financial plan and was designed to smooth the running of council services. And I I won't go through all the details there. I mean, you get it. Councils basically are asking for increases or special rate variations each and every year. Some years, they get 2.5%. Some They get 1.3%. Anyway, a Wallara Council representative said they welcomed the decision by IPART to address the impact of the historically low peg rate of 0.7% announced in December to the expected 2.0%. The decision, they say, will assist us in meeting the needs of our community and addressing rising expenditure, reduced income from interest and the ongoing challenge of securing long-term financial sustainability for our council and the community we serve. We are grateful to the local government New South Wales and the local government minister, Wendy Tuckerman, Uh, blah, 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 on it goes. Uh, Look, they'll come up with a whole range of reasons why your rates should increase each and every year. A city of Sydney Sydney council spokeswoman said council's largest source of income is rates. Rates are used to fund much of our operations and capital works. The disruption of the last two years has caused a significant imbalance between the permitted rate increases, as determined by IPART, and the current levels of inflation, as calculated by the Australian Bureau of Stats. So, look, it's pretty obvious that councils are crying poor, and they're saying the rising cost of living, which is affecting you, me, and everybody else, is also affecting councils. So in a bid to address this substantial imbalance, the New South Wales government offered councils across the state the opportunity to boost their permitted rate increase by up to 2.5%. If they had already factored this into their long-term financial plans and the funds were required to provide adequate financial support for operational and capital programs. The representative said the rise would see an average of an $18 increase on residential rates. All right, that's for the city of Sydney. In Sydney Southwest, Liverpool Council received an IPART determination of a 1% rise, which is significantly lower 
than the rising cost of services, according to a council spokesman there in Liverpool. A 1% rise under current economic conditions is significantly lower than the increasing cost of delivering Liverpool City Council's core services across waste, road improvements and new infrastructure projects. Look, I think what it comes down to is the fact that councils may have to obviously keep going with the essential services like, you know, (laughs) your uh, waste disposal and the likes. Uh, But maybe some capital works, some infrastructure works that, uh, you know, might not be needed immediately. Maybe they should be put on hold for now. And many councils may well have to do that. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning, live around Australia, here on starterfm.com.au, iHeartRadio, and of course the TuneIn app. Nice to have your company as well if you're listening to us on the podcast, the Prawncast. Now, what, a month or so, uh, just about, into this new government, well, a month today, the 21st, yes, um, it's pretty obvious the calls are getting louder and louder for the Albanese government to do something about Julian Assange. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie has declared the time for whispers and secret handshakes to free Julian Assange is over. He is calling on the Albanese government to take strong action to secure the WikiLeaks founders' freedom. He told Sky News Julian Assange has been incarcerated for near on a decade, both in the Ecuadorian embassy and must be about three years now in Belmarsh Prison in London. I, and I think a lot of people, have given the new government time to resolve this. But there we were last Friday, and the British Home Secretary actually signed off on the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. Excuse me, Mr Wilkie said Mr Assange had suffered enough and he's called on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese now to act. He said, and I quote, Anthony Albanese, you've got a good relationship with Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. Please pick up the phone and demand that this madness end. When you boil it all down, we've got a Walkley Award-winning Australian journalist and Australian citizen who in 2010 revealed hard evidence of US war crimes, and he, and he did. Surely he's suffered enough. Surely he can be released from Belmarsh, the extradition can be dropped, and he can be allowed to return home if that's what he wants to do. Now... Anthony Albanese has indicated he did not believe telegraphing the government's diplomatic representations would help the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder. Mr Albanese said, I have made clear on what my position is publicly. I made it clear last year. I stand by my comments that I made then. I make this point as well, said Albo. There are some people who think that if you put things in capital letters on Twitter and put an exclamation mark that somehow it makes it more important. It doesn't. He said, I intend to lead a government that engages diplomatically and appropriately with our partners. Now, UK Home Secretary Priti Patel on Friday approved the extradition of the Australian-born WikiLeaks founder to the United States. 
Now, he's wanted there still on 18 charges, including hacking and alleged espionage. And if he's found guilty, I mean, (laughs) this bloke faces up to 170 years in prison. Now, Mr. Sanger's wife, Stella, has spoken to the Australian media in the past few days and said that there had been a shift in the federal government's approach to the case since Labor won the election. She said the government needed to act immediately and she would uh, appeal against the UK's decision to approve his extradition. It's obvious that the Australian government can and should be speaking to its closest allies to bring this matter to a close. Julian Assange's wife said, This is an extremely controversial prosecution, including in the United States. And she's right. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles said the Albanese government's position was that enough is enough when it came to Mr Assange's treatment. I'm very confident in the work happening behind the scenes by the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. That's what uh, Andrew Giles, the Immigration Minister, said. Senator Wong said in a joint statement with the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade would provide consular assistance. They said the Australian Government has been clear in our view that Mr Assange's case has dragged on for too long and that it should be brought to a close. Now, Julian Assange has 14 days to appeal to London's High Court. It's high time he returned home to Australia because, I'm sorry, journalism is not a crime. Alrighty, welcome back. Let's get to some of your feedback from our Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Thank you for liking and following all that we do, uh, that content online, greatly appreciated. Now, uh, in relation to uh, the racially divisive publicity stunt by Adam Bant, not my words, I mean, it's divisive. Is it racially divisive? Maybe. Uh, Of course, the story is, and I mentioned it earlier in the show, uh, the Greens letter yesterday held a press conference with the Australian flag pushed off to the side of the room with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags front and centre. Uh, It was labelled an idiotic stunt by uh, many, including, of course, Warren Mundine. Uh, That's who, uh, of course, many go to for Indigenous uh, points of view, apparently. Anyway. Carl says, Marcus, as a migrant myself, the last thing I want is some performative white guilt on my behalf. Uh, Gareth says, when you have nothing important to say, it's best to make some controversy to gain attention. It works. We're talking about it. And this one from Mick. There is room, Marcus, for three flags on stage and in our hearts. And I agree with you. Absolutely, Mick. I've got no problem with Adam Bant. Um, wanting to uh, stand front and centre and proudly in front of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags. No problem with that whatsoever, so long as the Australian flag is also present. He is an Australian uh, uh, politician. He's paid by my taxes, your taxes. We go to work every day to pay these people quite well, mind you. Um, you know, they, uh, they get the lurks and perks of office. They're using... Uh, the parliamentary offices in Sydney where this press conference took place. Again, our taxes pay for that, so you need to, I think, show respect. And it it's not 
respectful at all to throw the Australian flag off to one side. All right. Uh, look, many of you commenting on rela- in relation to the John Barillaro story. I <laughs> I put a post up yesterday. Uh, this is this upper house inquiry into Mr. Barillaro's plum New York appointment. A half a million dollar job. Not bad. Uh, critics call it a another job for the boys from the Liberal Party. Um, and, of course, it comes after... Uh, Mr. Barillaro recently won a massive defamation payout of $715,000 from Google. And we know all know that story. Uh, anyway, I just wrote, I guess some people are just lucky. Look, there are concerns, of course, with this, and that is that, uh, you know, this plum position was given without proper oversight. So the story, of course, the New South Wales Upper House will now hold an inquiry into a plum New York posting that was handed to former Deputy Premier John Barillaro amid outrage from Liberal MPs at Premier Dominic Perrottet's captain's pick. So it's not just the opposition, not just Chris Benz and New South Wales Labor that are you know, raising their eyebrows about this half a million dollar appointment. <laughs> it's some Liberal MPs as well. Now, Mr Barillaro was appointed as the half-million-dollar-a-year Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner to the Americas. Uh, he was awarded this plum gig last Friday in a move that has infuriated Perrottet's colleagues, including ministers. Now, the position, the problem is, the position didn't go to Cabinet and was, in fact, created by John Barillaro himself when he was Trade Minister. Now, many say, of course, that, um, you know, maybe uh, because of his experience as Trade Minister, then he does qualify. But backbenchers are furious at this move, with many describing it as a, quote, an appointment for mates. Yeah, the optics aren't good. I'm sorry, but the optics are not good. And it seems that obviously John Barillaro cannot stay out of the headlines at the moment. Anyway, plenty of you having a say in relation to that story, and I appreciate it. Just be a little careful with some of the comments because, uh, you know, (laughs) he can be a little litigious, as you would know. John Barillaro. All right. uh, And, uh, of course, we had this... uh, I put this video up. I think it's uh, 23-odd shares, but it's been viewed a few thousand times now. It was Matt Keane trying to tell power companies to put people before profit. And I suggested, hang on, Matt, that's like trying to explain to Peter Dutton that the wind actually blows at night. (laughs) Oh, dear. But thank you for your comments. Uh, Adam and Matthew, uh, Mark says, power, water and roads are all in the public interest. They should never, ever be privatised, especially to overseas companies. And, And he's right. That's what it all comes down to. The over-privatisation of assets owned by Australians, whether it's in New South Wales, Queensland or Calathumpia. They shouldn't be flogged off. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, well, that'll just about do us for this Tuesday, the 21st day of June. Thank you for your company over the last couple of hours on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe listening back on the 
Prawncast, the podcast. If you are, please, if you wouldn't mind, give it a share on your social media so that others can find us and find out what we do. Please stay with us uh, across the day. Plenty to go up on social media. Uh, there'll be a stack of stories, of course, uh, being Budget Day in New South Wales. Uh, expect a big figure so far as uh, debt and deficits concerned. Uh, of course, you know, they will blame COVID. There's no doubt about that. But I mean, yeah, I did go through that earlier that, you know, $1.3 billion, there was a lot of taxpayer dollars spent in propping up the economy and supporting people in New South Wales through the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, the government shouldn't be criticised for that. But, uh, you know, there's a whole stack of uh, waste of money that I think uh, needs to be addressed. And I'm glad to hear that they're having another look at the books in relation to that $25 million, ridiculous $25 million price tag to put another flag on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, for goodness sake. Anyway, uh, well, I was thinking about that yesterday. Why does, oh, I suppose it's New South Wales, yeah, maybe you do need three flags there. I just thought, why not just have the Australian and the Aboriginal flag there? Uh, but I don't think the Premier's Department will quite like that. <laughs> Probably not. All right, enjoy the remains of today. Uh, please um, catch us on the podcast, on the Prawncast. Give us a subscribe on YouTube, Marcus Paul in the morning. And, of course, uh, continue to follow our social media, uh, particularly the Facebook page, where there'll be plenty of stories going up today, and we love getting your feedback on those issues. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9 around Australia. Marcus Paul in the morning. Bye for now. Hello, everybody. This will get you the goodies.